From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a podcast about arts and letters, but for people who might hack a dart. We're a left-wing show about ideas, about academia, and sometimes about the courts. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. This could be the one. The one that overturns Roe v. Wade. People, of course, have been saying that for a while, and it hasn't happened. Instead, it's been a thousand little attacks. One onerous regulation here, one onerous regulation there, and effectively, you can basically outlaw abortion. But in theory, at least, Roe stands. However, the Supreme Court is very different now. It's chock full of Trump-appointed ideologues, and so the anti-choice states are getting more bullish. And this week, that Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Health. And to understand what's going on, I think we need a little primer. Mississippi has a law that bans almost all abortions after 15 weeks. Now, Jackson Women's Health They provide abortions in Mississippi. They're actually the only licensed provider. And they've said, well, this law is totally unconstitutional. It completely contravenes Roe v. Wade. It contravenes how that case interprets the 14th Amendment. According to it, due process includes, quote, a right to privacy that protects the decision to have an abortion. I'm pulling this now from the SCOTUS blog, which has a very helpful explainer. Now Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court, well, is Roe v. Wade still valid? At first they didn't. When they initially petitioned the court, they said that this wasn't about that, but they changed their minds. Now they're asking the question. You may be hearing me and thinking to yourself, why are you talking about Mississippi? This whole Texas ban was way worse. And yeah, it was. Texas basically banned all abortions after six weeks, not 15. But most legal observers think that this Mississippi situation could be far more wide-reaching. And they think that because of the question that the case asks. It asks, quote, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Okay, I'm going to go even more into the weeds here. What is pre-viability? Well, Okay, Roe v. Wade drew the line in the sand at the third trimester. That's about 28 weeks. After that, no abortions. Before that, you've got a constitutional right. But that science became old, and it became flimsy. So the court updated their reasoning in a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. This case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, this is the one that created the viability standard. The question is really simple. Is the fetus viable? If it is, you can't do it. You can't have an abortion. If it isn't, well, you can. Casey put that at around 23 or 24 weeks. So just to recap, the viability line is where your constitutional right to an abortion ends. And like I said, Mississippi put their line at 15 weeks, but that is way before the scientific and legal consensus of viability. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, babies born before 23 weeks have a survival rate of just 5 or 6%. Q 
here's why I'm getting into all this detail. Mississippi is saying there's basically no reasons the court should care so much about viability, because viability is a moving target. It's an artificial construct, really. The state literally argued that an infant isn't even viable. They depend on their mother. This is like right-wing postmodern science studies. What even is viability, man? All facts are socially constructed. If the justices agree, if they think viability is an artificial construct, then this could undermine the legal framework for abortion access. Or maybe the court will just tweak the standard. We don't know. Their decision is expected next summer. Of course, the liberal and centrist members of the courts are clearly worried about the blowback of overturning Roe v. Wade. But it's a conservative court now. And if they agree with Mississippi, if they go all the way and overturn Roe v. Wade, well, it's going to have a cascading effect nationally. 26 states have automatic laws on the books that are immediately going to trigger. 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute. So today on Darts and Letters, we look at the cases. We look at the broader struggle for reproductive justice, and we look at the political and intellectual history of anti-choice movements. It's not just Texas and Mississippi. There's a patchwork of onerous restrictions across the South. And because of that, it has become confusing, difficult, and downright expensive to get an abortion. So, the poorest suffer most. Like Lori Bertrand Roberts. They couldn't afford an abortion when they wanted one. Now, Lori is head of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Front. Lori drives people to and from clinics hundreds of miles away. They give out gas money, whatever they need. It is a grassroots direct aid network. The reason that this model came out of the work that myself and the other co-founders were doing is because we were all poor. Poor folks, we ain't got time to sit around and have a year's worth of meetings about like who's going to be on the board. People need stuff now. Abortion is like the wedge issue for conservative evangelicals. And the standard story is this was a post-Roe v. Wade backlash. But Chelsea even says it's a lot more complicated than that. Eben is assistant professor at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She tells us, first off, most evangelicals simply didn't really care about abortion. It was cunning strategy and careful coalition building that made it the issue that it is. The left has labored under the misguided fiction that the right only reacts to what the left does. And that keeps us from identifying what for the right are its utopian visions. They're dreaming bigger than you give them credit for. But first, driving hundreds of miles for an abortion. Becca Andrews does some great reporting on reproductive rights for Mother Jones. We first came across her 2019 piece in the post-Roe issue. It included a feature about women driving 221 miles to get an abortion. And Lori was a major part of it. This is what it's like to get an abortion in the South. And that's where Becca does most of her reporting. What you have here is a deliberately Byzantine process filled with all these technocratic rules and regulations. And all this varies state by state. Different regulations, different processes, different prohibitions, different cutoffs. 
Like in Mississippi, the cutoff is 16 weeks, but in Arkansas, it's 22. I mostly called Becca to hear more about the current legal cases, what's going on over Texas, what's going on over Mississippi. But first, I wanted to hear more about living and reporting on abortion from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm from a a really small town in rural West Tennessee, was born into an evangelical family, was really evangelical for most of my life until I turned about 21. But one of the things that always really bothered me about the faith as it was portrayed to me was that my gender sort of made me less. And I just could never totally buy into that, I guess. And I think also like growing up in a rural area where like I saw women who just didn't know how their bodies worked, like we were never told how our bodies worked, our sex education in the state of Tennessee. Tennessee has a something that's called a gateway sexual activity law, which means educators aren't allowed to talk about sex or anything that could be construed as gateway sexual activity, which is obviously very broad. So, you know, our sex education was abstinence only. It was very like don't do it. And here are some really gross pictures of infection. So like, I really understand where people are coming from when they're anti-abortion. And I, I understand sort of like the weird logic and like rationale people use with these attitudes. So, you know, and and I also like, I am very passionate about telling the stories of people who just aren't heard very often. And, you know, in the rural Southeast, it's like you have a national media reporter who parachutes in and they're just kind of like, I swear to God, like they find like the biggest like redneck that fits into like their cliche of like what the South is and go with that. And I just like to paint a more nuanced portrait than that. Going forward to the Texas law and the six week um, is the cutoff, the kind of deputizing or um, kind of almost like martial law of letting people sort of snitch on people that are breaking these rules, pretty heinous. What exactly is going on right now? Because I know that the Supreme Court has been hearing arguments about lawsuits that are going forward against the Texas law. Last uh, I checked the news, there's no uh, verdict on those. Why has there been no decision yet? That's a really good question. So the court heard oral arguments on November 1st in the Texas case. We're talking now on the 23rd of November, and there is no ruling, as you said. So it's been about 80 days. Folks in Texas really haven't been able to access abortion care. That the court hasn't ruled on this says a lot about the court's priorities So it says that they don't see this as an emergency situation. They don't see this constituting an emergency ruling, which is actually sort of surprising given the high-profile nature of the case. And the court generally likes to be a little more subtle than this. Mm. And, you know, frankly, I think a lot of us are just kind of like, are we missing something? Like, what's happening? So I think we're all just kind of stuck and, like, waiting. But in the meantime... Patients in Texas are having to travel just absurd distances to get care. I embedded with a clinic in Oklahoma, and the parking lot was just full of cars with Texas license plates. You had patients in the waiting room who were just exhausted and had just really been through hell to get to Oklahoma. It's really tough seeing that. What do they see as more important? Like, What else are they doing in the meantime, if not deciding on this? It's a little strange. There has been some speculation by legal experts that the court will rule 
against the state of Texas in this upcoming case so that they can rule in favor of Mississippi. And the next case to sort of like put forth a more reasonable, reasonable air quotes path toward overturning Roe. But yeah, it's really kind of baffling that they haven't acted yet on Texas. Yeah, I, I was listening to this other legal podcast this morning and they were they were sort of saying just that, that sort of Texas is is the one that's getting all the attention, but the one to be really worried about is Mississippi and the Dobbs case, which I want to ask you about in a sec. But on the question of how this is really impacting the women in Texas, and, and I've seen some reporting about just how much the abortions have plummeted, you know, by half or more. More. Where are people going? You said Oklahoma. They go all over the place. So I've seen patients as far away as Huntsville, Alabama. I think there's a lot of credit to be given to abortion funds right now, particularly in Texas. They are just doing this really incredible work of fundraising so that people can pay for travel, they can pay for childcare, they can pay for food. But that's a lot of money and it adds up really quickly. So, you know, relying on this grassroots organizing is not sustainable. Honestly, I think that average patient would be contacting one of those funds just out of sheer overwhelming, how do I even start, right? Because from there, you have to navigate whatever state you go to, their regulations. So like, for example, because I'm in Tennessee, say someone from Texas comes to Tennessee to get an abortion, there's a waiting period. So they have their first appointment to see a doctor and to get the ultrasound and to establish gestation. And then, you know, they have to wait 48 hours because the state thinks that people need that time to think about whether or not they need abortion care or whether or not they actually really want it, which um, is pretty patronizing when you think about it. That's more time that a person has to, you know, maybe stay in a hotel or like come back, you know, just depending on their circumstances. It really adds up. There was a patient that I was speaking with in, in Alabama who had come from Texas and she was saying it was the first time she had ever left her hometown, ever. Yeah. And she had already driven to Jackson, Mississippi to try to get care. She was just over the limit when she got there. So then she came on to Alabama. Like, that is a lot. That is a lot for one person to be navigating. You get the impression reading these stories that it's kind of like a thousand little cuts, you know, mm-hmm. an onerous regulation here onerous regulation there, this cooling off period, various admitting privileges, rather than a kind of full scale throwing out of Roe v. Wade, which might happen one day. But in your reporting on this, I'm wondering if you can sort of give me like a brief, like audio listicle essentially of like the craziest abortion regulations that you've heard. I mean, regardless of the state, what are some of the things that women across the South um, or across the country in general have to deal with in terms of these little thousand little cuts? I mean, in the United States, there there are a lot of states that have mandated counseling Mm -hmm. where a patient is forced to sit there and listen to disinformation about abortion. Like they're literally forced to listen to things that are not true, that are, are meant to dissuade them from having an abortion. Some states require ultrasounds, so they require, like, the patient to look at the ultrasound 
or the the technician to show the patient the ultrasound. You can't really force someone to look at it, but it's like, how can we make this extremely normal medical procedure, something traumatic and something that is just extremely painful to get? Like, it's already not fun, you know, like no one wakes up and they're like, I want an abortion or like, I want my cavity filled, you know, like no, no one does that. And, and to like put people through this, I think is extremely inhumane. It's a huge socioeconomic and racial justice issue, right? Because like if you can just fly to California and have the means to sort of understand the system and whether it's despite, you know, what waiting might be necessary versus someone who doesn't have childcare, doesn't have that flexibility at work. I mean, can you speak a little bit to that? Like who are the women that are sort of most affected by these types of rules? I would say bottom line in this country, no matter what happens to abortion access, privileged women of a certain economic status will always be able to access abortion care because, you know, like crazy, like worst case handmaid's tale scenario, like they can leave the country, right? Or in like the more likely scenario, they can travel to haven states where it's still legal. The people that I have spoken to that are going through this stuff are primarily low income. They're primarily people of color. And they already just have these barriers to just basic reproductive health care in their lives. I think when we talk about abortion access, we really forget to embed it in this larger spectrum of reproductive care. So like people need access to contraception. That's like pretty basic. But in the United States, in a lot of areas, particularly rural areas, particularly for lower income people, it's hard to get that kind of long-term care. Like you don't have like one provider that you're going to over and over who's really assessing your needs and providing you with what you need based on what stage you're at in your life. I think that's one thing that's really important to bear in mind. You know, like in order to have good reproductive health care, people also need to have access to clean water and good food. And, and, and these are just things that are not provided for people. These like basic human needs are not met. So what is at issue here in the case that is being heard this week when this podcast is out, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Just for context, can you explain the Mississippi law that they are talking about and what is being um, decided in that case? So the, the law passed in 2018 and it bans abortion after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. That might not sound extreme, particularly when you compare it to what's happening in Texas, but it is this, the consequences are very severe because it is a sort of step toward like establishing that you can really chip away at abortion rights based on gestation. You said people may are expecting the, the court may rule in favor here of the law. What are you expecting? That's what I'm expecting. I think it makes a lot of sense, particularly in the context of Chief Justice Roberts' approach to the law and that he's not going to want to do anything that looks like it's outright politically motivated, right? Like he wants to find a very like, quote unquote, reasonable place to start this. He doesn't want to be accused of being politically motivated. He doesn't want his legacy sort of tarnished in that way. 
So this would be an easier step for the court to take than going completely like full force. Yes, abortion is banned at six weeks, free for all. Mm -hmm. I know it's hard to prognosticate, but it strikes me that there's Mm -hmm. sort of like, there's the path of the kind of thousand cuts where Roe v. Wade is like effectively overturned, especially for women or people of, of lower socioeconomic means. And then there's, you know, the sort of banner day for the evangelicals where it's sort of like over. That latter one seems to me to be like politically explosive and sort of more difficult to stomach for the uninitiated watcher of these politics. I mean, do you think that that's ultimately where things are going to go? Are they going to step short of it and not have their sort of banner day around dismantling Roe v. Wade? Like you said, it's difficult to prognosticate. Like, unfortunately, my crystal ball is offline today. (laughs) But I think the worst that it could get would be the issue gets kicked back down to the states. Mm -hmm. And so then you have all these states that have what we call trigger laws which, you know, bans abortion in the state as soon as the federal government and as soon as, like, the federal courts say it's okay. So when and if that happens, then you just have a handful of states left remaining that are haven states for abortion rights, where where people can go to get abortion care still in this country. Those clinics don't have the resources to take on that sort of onslaught. So so you, you can see where it still gets pretty dire and it's still just people of lower socioeconomic status are still the ones who are left behind and still have the most like substantial burden to overcome. One thing that I'm curious about throughout the conversation we've had today and throughout, you know, all of the research and reporting that I've been consuming about this in the last few days, the impression that I leave is it's so complicated, you know, It's a patchwork. All these states are different. They're trying different tactics, different things trigger based on what happens. Um, And for the average person, they really just can't make sense of it. And I'm wondering if this kind of Byzantine nature is just, you know, the quirk of how healthcare is run in the United States, or if there's a certain element of sort of design, I guess, for people to not really comprehend the full scope of what's happening because it happens in this sort of piecemeal way? I mean, am I being too conspiratorial here or is that generally the mindset? No, I don't think you're being conspiratorial at all. I think it's absolutely a tactic. And I think it's especially difficult for people who aren't so steeped in this. I'm like, I'm steeped in this and I keep having to like fact check myself to make sure I'm right because it's so complicated and Mm -hmm. it's so disjointed. So You know, something that we have talked a lot about in covering abortion access is, you know, you'll have a state legislature that will, you know, ban abortion and then it'll be overturned in court. But normal people who are just like consuming the news and who maybe need abortion care or or whatever, all they see is that abortion has been banned in their state. Like they don't realize that they can still access care because the court overturned, like the Minutia and all of the like legal back and forth, I think, is just another way of inhibiting people from getting the care that they need. That was Becca Andrews. She's a reporter at Mother Jones. You can find her on Twitter at KBeccaAndrews. Her forthcoming book is called No Choice, 
It is about the past, present, and future of Roe v. Wade, and it's coming out in early 2023. So what is it like to drive hundreds of miles to get an abortion? More on that in a minute. We need your support. If you like what we do, I want you to chip in. Please go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Last week, we got some new listeners. Welcome to Darts. If you've not heard of us before, let me introduce us. Darts is a Canadian slang term for cigarette. And arts and letters, those are like elite learned societies. Basically, intellectual life. But we don't think that intellectual life should be for the elites. It should be for everyone. We're populist like that. So what we do here is really simple. We take a critical and radically democratic look at the world of ideas. We look at our thought leaders, our intellectuals, scholars, academic theorists, legal theorists, technocrats, those types. The ideas they come up with, they shape the world around us, whether we like it or not. So they've got to be watched. A show about them had to exist, but it didn't. So we made it. If you can get behind that, chip in. Patrons get content a day early, and eventually, when enough of you chip in, I'm going to start making more exclusive bonus material. That's at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Okay, on with the show. Lori Bertram Roberts helps people in the South get abortions. Lori's head of the Yellowhammer Abortion Fund in Alabama and the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Remember, the case I mentioned at the top, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, that's over a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 16 weeks. Jackson Women's Health is the only licensed clinic in Mississippi. So yeah, it's tough to get an abortion in the state. So a lot of what Lori does is help people get to other states. Lori was featured in Becca's reporting. People have to drive hundreds of miles, and Lori and the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund is there to help. But they do more than that because they have a wider philosophy, the philosophy of reproductive justice. So reproductive justice is the right to parent, the right not to parent, the right to parent your children that you have in safe and secure communities, healthcare, housing, being safe from state-sanctioned violence, all of those things that we currently are not, and being able to express your sexuality how you want to, Mm. when you want to, and have sex for things beyond procreation, right? And for pleasure. And to be taught adequate sex ed and have access to full reproductive health care. So my average day can look anything like I'm in Mississippi and I'm working on, you know, diaper equity and diaper access, like literally giving out diapers in Mississippi. Hmm. Or it can be me waking up, doing a call line call for Mississippi, and then working as ED in Tuscaloosa on finding funding for abortion funding, slash our diaper program, slash our period supply program. Hmm slash navigating assistance for people virtually, even like delivering groceries to their house by Instacart. I like the kind of direct aid or mutual aid. It's very different from the kind of big bureaucratic organization that might help people. I mean, why that kind of work in particular versus, you know, the sort of more institutional model? The reason that this model came out of the work that myself and the other co-founders were doing is because we were all poor. Poor folks, we ain't got time to sit around and have a year's worth of meetings (laughs) about like who's going to be on the board and let's sit around. I mean, people need stuff now. The people who needed help didn't have a year for us to sit around and lollygag and decide 
you know, who's going to be the fundraising coordinator and who's going to be the spokesperson. And I don't know, is it legal for us to buy plan B for kids who are under 17 if they don't have an ID back in 2013? No, this kid needs plan B today. They have 72 hours to take it. Ain't nobody got time for us to go find a lawyer and find out. (laughs) Just go buy the damn plan B and give it to the kid. Like what the fuck? It's not that it's not that like we literally have another organization that gives out period supplies and will not give tampons to homeless people because they're afraid they'll get toxic shock syndrome. What? Somehow a liability. And that's the most insane white savior bullshit I've ever heard. Mm. If you think it's safer to give people pads, they don't want that. They'll turn around and make into tampons that will now have germs on them, that they'll be more likely to get toxic shock syndrome from. That is the most, patronizing thing I've ever heard. They're like, well, they might not have access to bathroom. Well, how do you think they're already changing their pads? And that's the kind of stuff that just like drives us crazy as people who have been formerly houseless, as people who have been, you know, low income most of our lives. And so that's where our model comes out of is it's like, people don't have time for you to sit around and debate whether or not it's okay for you to give someone cash in their hand. Mm. Like people need your help now and they don't need you judging them. They don't need you preaching to them. They just need the assistance. They know what's best for their lives. They don't need you telling them. Right, right. That level of trust, I like that. And in your case, do I have this right? I mean, a lot of the people that you work with are are literally your family, right? And like people in the community, it's pretty tight knit. We gatekeep. I think there are certain forms of gatekeeping that's good. We don't allow very well-meaning people, especially white people who are middle class, to come and do direct service work with our community. Not because we don't think they're nice or well-meaning, but they don't have the range. Mm -hmm. And we don't want anyone to come into our community and and unintentionally cause harm, be microaggressive, whatever, because they're on a poverty safari to make themselves better. We're not here to make you better. We're Mm -hmm. here to make our community better. So we need people from the community doing the direct work. So everyone who's on our board, everyone who does direct work, everyone who's there handing out our diapers, everyone who's like an abortion doula are people who are of our community. And in in the Mississippi group in particular, I mean, could you tell me a little bit more about who the community is and what, like when they call you up, what are some of the the typical things that they're asking for support with? I mean, of course, obviously our our, one of our main things is abortion support. Obviously, we help people with practical practical support for abortion. We, you know, help people with gas money, hotel stays. I mean, we just helped three people this morning. We help people with anything from childcare to actually the money for their abortion, but we put it in their hands and they use it themselves. We don't pay directly to clinics anymore just because it's literally easier. Everyone has cash up. Everyone has PayPal. I mean, there's almost always a way for us to get money into the hands of people. Beyond that, we have people who need birth control. We pay for their birth control. We have people that need plan B. We get them plan B. We have people who need pregnancy tests. We give them pregnancy tests. We have people who need diapers. We get them diapers. They need period supplies. We got period supplies. You need a crib. We got a crib. You need a car seat. We got a car seat. Sometimes we help people with housing. We help people who are being targeted with investigations through CPS who are not neglectful or abusive, but they just are poor. Hmm. And so CPS comes and they go, you need a bed, you need bed frames, or they need food. And it's like the last week before they get their food stamps, then we get them food, like Hmm. those kinds of things. It's literally everything because everything is reproductive justice. Like it's all 
reproductive justice. Yeah. What does it really cost to get an abortion if, say, you live in Mississippi and you have to go somewhere else? Yeah, let's say that we have someone who needs to go to Atlanta, because that's Mm -hmm. pretty common. We have people that go to Atlanta all the time. And let's say they got their abortion money through abortion funds or whatever, but they still have to pay for all of their gas. So let's say we are going to give them $80 for gas because we always give them a little bit more than we think they need um, because, hey, snacks, munchies, whatever. (laughs) And then you're going to need a hotel stay. Even if you don't have to stay overnight, we usually give them a hotel stay anyways because they're going to be there. They're going to drive like six hours and then they're going to be there all day. Who in their right mind wants to turn right around and drive back? Some people do just because they have to be back for work. But I personally do not encourage that because that's not safe. So we always offer people a room. You're talking about at least $80 for a room. So now you're at $160. Let's say they need childcare. Let's give it $100. Let's say the childcare is cheap and the person's only charging them $100. Now we're at $260. We haven't even talked about like $100 for food. Now we're at $360 on top of, let's say, $800 that's for their abortion. Mm. So we're already into over $1,000 just to go and get an abortion. And that's like being the most frugal. Right. Do you remember the first time that you helped someone that you like did a trip like this? Like the first time you gave someone a long ride? Absolutely. That person's name was Brandy. It was in 2013. (laughs) (laughs) We took her to Tuscaloosa. We had to take her twice. Because of the waiting period, it was a two-day procedure. So we were there for two days. And then I was her abortion doula. So I went back with her when she got, you know, like did her procedure. Because when you have a two-day procedure, what they do is they put in these little things that are made of seaweed that dilate you. So they have to put those in the day before and then you go and wait overnight and mm-hmm. then come back in and then they, you do your procedure. So I went with her for that. And then I went back for her actual procedure, held her hand through all of that. She was actually my first client I ever went back with. And to be honest, because I had been raised anti-choice, I had a little piece of me who thought maybe I'm going to see something that's going to like change my mind. I saw nothing that changed my mind. Like absolutely nothing mm-hmm. that like, no, absolutely nothing. I, no. And she was 18 weeks. And then she got done and we drove her back to Jackson. We stopped in Meridian. We took her to Red Lobster. (laughs) And this is like a famous story now, like within the abortion world, that I'm the person who takes people to Red Lobster (laughs) when they have an abortion. If you get an abortion in Mississippi... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I saw that story too. I love that. <laughs> yes, and that I like, you know, if you get an abortion lawyer, I'll take you to Red Lobster, right? Like that's like the joke <laughs> now is like, you know, like Beyonce, I'll take you to Red Lobster. Um <laughs> here's my thing though. There's no reason why I should have to take you to a drive-thru if you yeah. want to go to a sit-down restaurant. There's no rule saying you have to be boohooing and not get good food after an abortion. Right. We were all tired. We needed to stretch. We got red lobster. We didn't even stay that long because like she was tired. We were tired. We got our food and we left. I don't see the problem. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to like be ashamed. Like it should be like as dignified as it can be. And that I think is so exciting about just you being there because even in the best case scenario, everything is funded. If everything is available, 
it still is really overwhelming. Like it's still hospitals are not cool places. They're super institutional. And if you have to go through a lot of ropes to actually just get care, to have someone there for you, to make you feel good instead of making you feel like more ashamed, that must be huge for people just to be treated like people with a friendly face. I mean, yeah, that's, I honestly wish I had had a doula, not just when I gave birth, but when I had my miscarriages. Like just someone who said, it's okay to feel how you feel. Like it's okay that you feel relieved not to be pregnant anymore. Cause I had a miscarriage that I never regretted was a miscarriage. Hmm. And there are people that feel that way. Not everybody's sad about pregnancy loss. And some people are like, I've helped people plan memorials after their pregnancy loss, including abortions. I've helped people figure out how they'll let, you know, let go or say goodbye or whatever. And I've also helped people celebrate their abortion. Like I've helped people kiki and be happy because they are no longer pregnant by their abuser. And I will never apologize for any of that. No one has to feel sad that they're not pregnant anymore when they didn't want to be pregnant. I mean, even my story of being a turnaway patient, I did not tell until I had been in the movement for years. Mm. Like I held that close. What's a turnaway patient? So a turnaway patient is someone who wants to seek an abortion, goes all the way to going to a clinic, Mm -hmm. pursues getting a procedure, and for whatever reason, and it can be many different reasons, is turned away from a clinic. One of the most common reasons is money. Right. A lot of times it's because they're too far along. That's a very common reason. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, they wanted an abortion and could not get one. And there's even a study about how being a turnaway patient has a negative impact on people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like that for most people who are turned away, there is a negative income aspect of it, but also a negative mental health aspect of being a turnaway patient. Even if that person turns around, bonds with their child, embraces having that child, which I did, I still ended up homeless. (laughs) Like I still struggled. And I held that guilt for years. So every time I had a problem with that child, I thought it was because like somehow they knew. Like, Mm. you know what I mean? Like it was just, it was so, I mean, I remember actually saying to their therapist one time, I said, I think she like internally somehow in the womb, she knew. And she was like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Like none of my clients love their child or is more connected to their child than me. (laughs) Like I've never heard such absurd tripe from anyone. But I mean- these are the stories that like people hold, the parents hold, especially moms hold this guilt of even right. thinking of having an abortion. I've had a client, a doula client who literally held, I don't think she would have ever told anyone if I hadn't been her doula, that because she considered having an abortion, she didn't want one. Mm-hmm. She decided she didn't want one, decided she wanted to carry her pregnancy to term, but felt guilty for even thinking about having an abortion. Like that's how far abortion stigma goes. Wow. So when you were turned away, what was the reason that you were turned away? Money. 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 And then once I fi- had finally had the money, because I was about to start college for the first time, I was 18. By the time I had the money, I was too far along. Mm. And in order for me to get a procedure, I would have had to go out of state. And I just didn't have, I had the money, but I couldn't afford to take that much money from my household. Mm. And I couldn't afford to miss school or work long enough to go out of state. So the same thing that the people that I assist now go through. That's such a tough spot because it's like, you don't have the money really to have a kid, but you also don't have the money 
to have an abortion. To not have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's the weirdest conundrum to be in, right? And then the solution that antis give you is, well, just give away your kid. Right. Which is not a solution. <laughs> Let me just throw that out there. Yeah. An adoption is not a solution to not wanting to be pregnant. Right. And that also low income people do not owe middle class and upper middle class people our babies. People who are struggling or who do not want to gestate children do not owe anyone our children. We do not owe anyone our children because they cannot have babies. Like, that's not what adoption was originally created for. It was created for orphans. Tell me a little bit more about that. There's like, that has sort of become institutionalized, hasn't it? Right. Adoption has become a market. Yeah. Adoption is a money-making business. And then there's also literally a movement within Christianity to build up God's family and army through adoption, which is why they're saying, you know, you should adopt more kids. You should adopt kids from other countries. You should adopt kids out of foster care. It's why you see anti-choicers pushing for parental rights to be terminated faster, especially for young children, so that they can adopt. That's the only pro-family policies they're pushing for. More with Lori Bertram Roberts in a second. Next, we talk about the cases working through the courts and about the viability argument. Whenever they're making the argument about viability, it's just thinly veiled fetal personhood. But first, a quick message. Darts and Letters is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. That's a collection of Canadian left-wing podcasts. And we recommend that you take a look at some of the recent work from our friends on the network. Press Progress has an interview with Noah Zatzman. That's the guy who blew up the Green Party of Canada. Why Noah agreed to that interview, I don't know. Alberta Advantage has a fascinating history of the Canadian Communist Party. I learned a lot, like I always do. And just in time for the holidays, Paris Marks of Tech Won't Save Us has an episode about why you shouldn't buy smart gadgets. You can subscribe to those shows and more at harbingermedianetwork.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Darts and Letters. Okay, back to my interview with Lori Bertram Roberts. Lori is head of the Yellowhammer Fund in Alabama and the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. I wanted to ask you about like this case, this Dobbs case that's about to be heard the oral arguments about to be heard this week. Yeah, fun time. So just by way of background, like w- w- what exactly is the law in Mississippi? I think that 2018 was passed, right? This law that's now being reviewed. So the 20-week ban is on the books now, Yeah, which means nothing to the clinic. But what it impacts is people who are at hospitals who have uh, life-threatening pregnancies and or um, severe fetal anomalies and need an abortion in hospital that 20-week ban has scared doctors so much that they're basically not doing that at all anymore. And they were already were very rarely doing it to begin with. So we get referred those cases. And most of those people aren't even pro-choice people or, you know, people who would ever thought to have an abortion. And then, of course, there's the 15-week back when it's just technically on the books, but it stayed because of um, the lower court's decisions to block it. So right now, everything's chugging along like it always has been. Nothing's really changed on the ground, but it's just looming over our heads. The problem is that if it goes into effect, then essentially Roe doesn't exist anymore because it obliterates the Roe viability standard. Right. 
Right. And if the road viability standard no longer exists, then states can do whatever they want. What kind of argument are they making? Like these states that want to set that threshold at 20 weeks or even below, are they making like a scientific case that 20 weeks is viability or 16 weeks is viability or 18 weeks is viability? Or is it just they don't really care? Some try, but honestly, it comes down to fetal personhood. What they want is fetal personhood. Let's just be real. Whenever they're making the argument about viability, it's just cloaked in fetal Mm. personhood, right? It's just thinly veiled fetal personhood. And to them, conception is fertilization. I'm not saying that when fertilization happens, you don't, that doesn't start the process of an embryo becoming an embryo. But if you can find me a doctor that'll tell you you're pregnant without implantation, please find them for me. Because if just fertilization made you pregnant, then there's a bunch of canisters at a fertility clinic that are pregnant. That's not pregnancy. Right. So yeah, fetal personhood. What would that what would that look like? I mean, you know, I've seen I mean it's very easy to talk about what fetal personhood looks like because all we have to do is look at Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland essentially had fetal personhood as law under the Eighth Amendment, right? Women and pregnant people and their fetuses were equal. That meant literally a fetus got a doctor and you had a doctor, and that fetus's doctor could override the care that you wanted. They could force care upon you. They could force you to keep gestating. They could declare that you could not have an abortion, even if you were suicidal. You can ask the migrant woman who was forced fed and forced to keep gestating until they forced her to have a C-section, even though she was literally suicidal because she was a rape victim. You know, you can ask Savita's husband who she was left to die, even though her pregnancy was non-viable and they would not give her an abortion. You can ask people here in the United States what that looks like. Ask me. Ask me what it looked like in the Catholic hospital I was at Mm. when they decided, oh, well, we're not going to complete your miscarriage because that would be an abortion and your embryo still has a heartbeat. So go home. And then I went home and almost hemorrhaged to death. Fetal personhood is not is not a thing that is workable in reality because you cannot take someone's bodily autonomy away from them and have it work in reality. How do you say, I do not have control over my body because I'm pregnant? Then you have situations like if you're brain dead, a doctor can rule to keep you alive just to gestate, effectively turning you into an incubator. How disgusting and like, dystopian and beyond that fetal personhood also if it was law that means no more IUDs no more birth control hormonal birth control you're talking about just barrier methods like essentially the whole country becomes the catholic church one thing I'm curious about is like the strategy it's like seems to me like a strategy of kind of like a thousand little cuts, like state by state, almost like a deliberate, you know, we don't want to go so far as to make a big stink out of like overturning Roe v. Wade. We'll just do it effectively kind of undercover of these like Byzantine bureaucratic sort of morasses. But at a certain point, I mean, you know, especially Texas and, and some of these other states, there's they seem to be getting more and more brazen. That sort of like undercover of bureaucracy thesis is like, doesn't seem to be holding up anymore. Is my is my reading of that right? Are they getting sort of more 
confident in just going all the way instead of doing it sort of like stealthily. Oh, yes. They've started saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Like if you look at Lynn Finch, who's the attorney general of Mississippi, when they first started this case, they were saying, oh, no, this is not an attack on Roe. I don't know why y'all are... They were just gaslighting every day. They were like, oh, I don't know why you guys are so uptight about this. It's only one week of access. It'll only be 15 weeks. I mean, it has nothing to do with other states. It's 15 weeks of access in Mississippi. Calm down. And then all of a sudden, here comes Lynn Finch with her big Washington Post, you know, op-ed where she's like, oh, no, we want the court to visit Roe v. Wade. That's that's the whole purpose. This is an attack on Roe v. Wade. It's time for Roe v. Wade to be reevaluated. You know, they're just, you know, obviously saying the quiet part out loud. But beyond that, they're also saying the quiet part out loud about replacement theory and their fears about white birth rates. Like, they're just going full hog with saying there's not enough babies to adopt. We can't replace our children with children from other countries. We, you know, I mean, like, they're just saying all the things. Like, let's just be clear. Yeah. And even when they're outliers who used to be outliers in their party say those things, they're not correcting them. I mean, they're just saying that they want to come after other stuff beyond abortion. Like, they're just flat out saying they don't think, you know, birth control should be free. They don't think birth control should even be yeah. something that's legal. I mean. How does that change things for you as an activist? I mean, it's terrifying, but on some level you must think, well, our sort of enemy is a lot more clear and, and no one can really fool themselves about who the, who the Republican Party is. Honestly, every time they overreach, I, I giggle. <laughs> Please keep overreaching. Please. <laughs> Please. Like, every time they overplay their hand, I don't want them to overplay their harm, hand and harm people. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Honestly, I believe some folks aren't going to believe that Roe is at risk or like abortion care is at risk until there's no abortion care where they live. Like when we were fighting the personhood vote in Mississippi, it wasn't really until white women were like, oh, wait, they coming for our IUDs Mm. and IVF? Oh, oh no, absolutely not. And then they got their butts to the polls and were like, nope. Mm -hmm. I hate to break it to the folks in the blue states who think they're safe. They're not safe. Mm. If they think they're safe, they're mistaken. Where do they think everybody's going to go when Roe falls? Your state's going to be packed with people from other states. It's going to impact your access too, even if it just means that there's longer waits at your clinic. And beyond that, if you think that they're going to stop at just restricting access at 23 states, no, like, no, they're not. Like some of the worst lawmakers are from blue states that's what that's the thing like some of the most rabid hateful on the national scene are from that means there's a pocket of these people voting in your state gerrymandering is happening everywhere like even in mississippi there was a time when we didn't think we were going to get here because every really bad abortion bill got killed by the democrats but here we are ever since the tea party they won everything in the south right And now they're gerrymandering stuff. So like we might never win anything ever again. (laughs) And I'm laughing, but I'm crying. That was Lori Bertram Roberts, executive director of the Yellowhammer Fund in Alabama and the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. If you want to support their work, donate today. You can find links in our show notes.
Abortion is like the culture war wedge issue for conservative evangelicals. It has become this totally inescapable focal point. You already know this. It's a large part of the reason why evangelicals got behind Trump. But what you might not know is that this is actually kind of new. Many evangelicals simply didn't care all that much about abortion. It wasn't even the issue post-Roe. And I think it's important, too, I always bring up, like, the Baptist press, like, they praise Roe v. Wade decision. Oh, so, I mean, yeah. these were mainline, you know, Protestant denominations, the Baptist press, I mean, that were actually praising the decision that was handed down in Roe versus Wade. So, uh, many, many... This is from the explicitly pro-life podcast from Students for Life. The host, Kristen Hawkins, is talking to Catholic activist Connie Marshner. And if you're not Catholic, your, your church probably got wrong on abortion, um, and then you're a Christian. So uh, very, very sad state of affairs. Um, I think today what's so great is you have so many Christians you know, working together uh, to, to, to make abortion illegal and unthinkable. Oh, you're so right about that. Let me, let me just add one other thing to show sure. you the power of propaganda. Um, Connie then goes on to argue that abortion is driven by liberal neo-Malthusianism. She says that Paul Ehrlich's influential book, Population Bomb, taught us to hate children. And so, apparently, that's why people softened up to the idea of abortion. And, and, and there was also a memo about how encouraging homosexuality was part of that same campaign to reduce population, mm -hmm. to save the world from overpopulation. Oh Different gosh. issue, but yeah. You just opened up a whole new can of worms, Connie. I know, no, you, you can edit that out. <laughs> no, we'll leave it in there. I think it's very important. There's a lot of wild connections made in Marshner's mind palace. But most of what she talks about in this podcast isn't really about her strange theories. The episode is about the history of the pro-life movement. And listening to it was really interesting because really it was chock full of shrewd political strategizing. Marshner talks about making abortion a wedge issue. She says it can get you two or three more points in an election because Catholics will flip away from Democrats. She talks about wooing evangelicals. She talks about toning down the Catholicness of the issue because of the anti-Catholic bigotry. There's a reason why I mention all of this. It's because Connie Marshner is the name you need to know to know why abortion became this evangelical issue. So says Chelsea Eben. Eben is assistant professor at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She's currently writing a book about how Catholics and evangelicals forged a new marriage of political convenience in the 1970s. I first came across her because her name is often referenced in passing in histories of the religious right or uh, histories of the new right, but always sort of in this passing fashion where she's referenced as an activist or referenced as a, as a policy analyst. But then, you know, folks move on to the more exciting, generally men who were leading these mm -hmm. movements. And Marshner worked alongside Paul Weirich, who is one of the central architects of the New Right movement for all of the 1970s. She was sort of by his side building the organizations and institutions that came to really ground the new right, and by extension, the religious right, because it was Weirich and some other new right activists who approached Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and sort of put a bug in their ear that they should form a public movement. And Marshner was a conservative Catholic. My most recent trip to the archives, I found um, an envelope 
with some, uh, a letter and some photos her father had sent her, like pictures of her parents on New Year's Eve. And then also all of these very, very conservative Catholic newspaper clippings, mostly focused about how Nixon was like, I don't know, a plant of Satan. It was, it was good. It was exciting. Uh, so she, she came by her conservative Catholicism, I think, from early childhood, I'm assuming, or at least in relation to her family. Uh, she was married to William Marshner, who was a conservative Catholic theologian and uh, sort of theorist of natural law. And he and John Finnis often are sort of referenced together. And Finnis, of course, was Justice Gorsuch's thesis supervisor. I know that she sort of wages a letter writing campaign against Nixon or against Nixon's child care policies. Do I have that right? Uh, so it's not against Nixon. It's a letter writing campaign to get a child care development bill vetoed right. by Nixon. Uh, and included in this bill would have been universal child care. This is 1971. And Marshner recruits mostly housewives and women, to write letters in opposition to the bill. And most of those women are Protestants. And Congress passed it and Nixon vetoed it. And so it is one of the early signs for new right activists that if they can uh, sort of bring the evangelical and fundamentalist Protestant conservatives into their circle, into their orbit, they will be able to mobilize a large grassroots base. And there's, you know, moving through the 70s, evangelicals and fundamentalist Protestants are themselves becoming increasingly politically activated, mm -hmm. but not around the same set of family issues. It's, it's a sort of related but distinct set of family issues that circle around opposition to school desegregation and parental rights. When does abortion become a serious issue for evangelicals? When, when is there like a sort of day one of abortion being a top of line issue? Uh, I don't know that there's a day one. I think that there's growing attention to social conservative issues throughout the 1970s, right? Jerry Falwell is holding these I Love America rallies, and he is sort of preaching about the evils and the sinfulness of homosexuality and pornography. And abortion is on that list, but it doesn't become a sort of central organizing concept for Protestants, I would say, until 79 or 80. Well, after Roe. So six years after the Supreme Court's decision. And yeah. Do they kind of like go back and change their kind of history and sort of the way they mythologize their own movement? Like is abortion the kind of thing that they'll say was always a, a central issue and this is just tradition or it, is there kind of a concession that there's a change, at least in emphasis? No, there's no concession, right? Uh, if you read Falwell's autobiographies, uh, he very much claims that, you know, the day the Supreme Court handed down the decision in Roe, he realized he needed to dedicate his life to fighting this. Sorry, cat came in um, after <laughs> like wouldn't be wouldn't be a zoom if there wasn't a cat. But the historical record and looking at his sermons that doesn't add up, and so there there is a gap and a lag around when that becomes central to 
his political organizing. Uh, Falwell did need to justify how he would, how he could rationalize becoming politically active because in response to the civil rights movement, he had preached a sermon castigating MLK Jr. and and civil rights leaders who came out of the church for mixing religion and politics. Mm. And (laughs) he, he was sort of very forceful that religion and politics should not mix and it was not appropriate. And so he had to, in some way, kind of, you know, come up with a story that gave him a justification for becoming the leader of the moral majority, right? For creating the moral majority. Uh, Randy Ballmer, who was one of the, the people on my dissertation committee and whose work I really admire, first advanced the argument that abortion was a cover for opposition to desegregation. And certainly in my research in the archives, I found meeting minutes that suggest that there was sort of open deliberation around abortion being a much more saleable and palatable issue to galvanize the Protestant grassroots around than going on national TV and saying, well, really, you know, we're just still Jim Crow racists. Walk me through that connection just so I make sure I understand, like, what what is the connection exactly between advancing an anti-choice agenda and advancing segregation? So you have in the 70s school busing programs and the implementation of the court's decision stemming from 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, right? And particularly white parents are really upset about the idea that their children are going to have to go to school with children of color. And so in the short aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education, late 50s through the 60s, you start to see the proliferation of what uh, we refer to as segregation academies, right? Private Christian schools that are segregated, that are whites only, and that are not subject to desegregation policies. 1964, you have the passage of the Civil Rights Act and then sort of through the 60s and into the 70s, you have local school boards, you have state governments, and you have the IRS beginning to enforce desegregation. That's sort of one part of the story, Mm -hmm. right? And from that, you then get all of these spokes around parental rights, around concerns about what's being taught in schools. All of that's happening. On the, the more straightforwardly conservative Catholic side, you have concerns around contraception and abortion. And at a certain point, right, these converge because it is not a politically viable issue to mobilize a grassroots space publicly on the basis of racism. But abortion was an issue if you are trying to save the lives of the unborn or the preborn, as some folks say, that's something you can go to the public, to the quote unquote moral majority with, right? And so there's sort of a calculated decision to uphold the sort of sanctity of the family and pro-family politics and to, I don't want to say backburner the segregation issues, but to, to really downplay that as as a mobilizing force and instead to play up opposition to abortion as the the like spark that gets people 
invested. Right. So it's an explosive wedge issue that lets you kind of backdoor segregationist like educational policy, if I understand you correctly. It lets you backdoor a whole slew of reforms and policies that let you keep white kids and African-American kids apart. Yeah. And all under all under the sort of umbrella or auspices of pro-family politics, right? And wrapped up in this is this idea of the traditional and maintaining the traditional, right? So the the sort of third track I would add to this mm-hmm. would be just your, your run-of-the-mill misogyny and opposition to women's rights, opposition to the sort of advancements that women were making in employment areas and, and sort of the rest of, of their social worlds. And certainly Connie Marshner was central to this, hmm. right? She opposed equal pay for men and women because she said that if women were paid significantly less, it would keep them from leaving the home. Um, and so one of her, one of her issues was opposing equal pay because like, if you, you know, just don't pay women, why would they be incentivized to have careers or identities outside of being wives and mothers? And all of this is while Marshner is, you know, herself a, a 80 hour a week worker. And so there's this, you know, real disconnect between the reality of women's lives, the reality of sort of race relations, and the way in which these conservatives are sort of trying to prefigure a world where there is, you know, women are confined to these very specific roles where abortion never has existed. I wanted to ask you about that word traditionalism. And and in your work, one one word that stands out or one phrase that stands out is this phrase of prefigurative traditionalism. I first came across the word prefigurative when studying like anarchist eco-communes, right? The idea of prefigurative politics is you want to sort of create the world in miniature, essentially the world that you want to live in. But this isn't a term you normally think of in in the religious right. You normally think of it in the left. So tell me a little bit about that term and and why why you use it next to traditionalism, which seems like almost a dichotomy. I don't know. Yeah, it seems almost like an oxymoron, right? To prefigure the traditional. Uh, I use it because as I was doing the research for my dissertation, I was looking at how this coalition came together, how Connie Marshner in particular was instrumental in forging the coalition and in doing so sort of redefining what was meant by the family and what was meant by a traditional woman, right? This whole sort of so many of the policies that she spearheaded were about trying to call into being a traditional way of living. But that tradition doesn't, it's not actually grounded in historical fact. And so when we think about abortion, you see religious conservatives saying that they are upholding tradition, right? That their anti-choice mobilization is in response to Roe versus Wade. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, from the, I don't know, probably 17th to the 19th centuries, abortion was practiced under common law in the United States up until the stage of quickening, which is this, again, kind of muddy, murky concept of when you begin to feel a fetus move around. And so for religious conservatives to say they're upholding 
tradition. They're upholding sort of their religious values. It's like, well, from when? At what point in time, right? And in whose tradition? And so the activists I look at are very much trying to promote policies that they justify on the basis of being traditional. But the implementation of these policies would actually create the social relations that would kind of produce the society they say they're trying to get back to. So it's sort of from the present, using the past to justify the future you want to create. So what happens to kind of both sides? And by sides, I mean the evangelicals and the Catholics, both sort of like theologically and intellectually, like in what ways do they change? Like is Protestantism sort of Catholicized or is it the other way around? <laughs> who, who influences who more? Are they just sort of like now is symbiotic? I, I love this question. Uh, I would say that they, they influence one another, right? Uh, so Protestantism gets Catholicized and you see the sort of um, adoption of the rhetoric of natural law and natural rights within conservative Protestant circles. And then we see the evangelicalization, or I think that's how I conjugate that word, <laughs> uh, the evangelicalization of Catholicism with Catholics referring to themselves as evangelical, right. with a uh, sort of movement towards embracing a personal relationship with Jesus. And certainly in, right, there, there are some, uh, they're not schisms yet, but uh, conservative Catholics have become very empowered to sort of challenge their own hierarchy. And we see this in opposition to the current Pope and all manner of things. So I would say that Catholics have taken the sort of individualism of Protestantism and Protestants have borrowed the intellectual traditions that help to support the kinds of justices we now have seated on the Supreme Court. What about on the level on the level of political economy and billionaire sort of donor class? like the blue-blooded Protestants are sort of like the ruling class of the United States, like the, you know, so do, do the Catholics then benefit from kind of plugging themselves into a funding infrastructure, a political action sort of infrastructure, or do they sort of already have it? I mean, I guess my question is like, were the evangelicals more kind of politically organized and politically funded than the Catholics were were the Catholics already pretty well funded? So if we, for the Catholics use as a stand in the new right, uh, which I'm inclined to do because of the, the deep Catholicism of Weirich and Richard Bigger and Connie Marshner, I think that they're really the ones who pioneer a lot of the fundraising strategies, right? Richard Vigory is the person who really, he doesn't develop direct mail technologies solely, but he's the one who, for conservatives, uh, operationalizes them and remakes fundraising. And the new right uh, sort of shifts its attention. There's there's sort of an opening in the political opportunity structure because of campaign finance reform legislation that inadvertently creates the, the opportunity for PACs to form. And the new right is right there from the beginning. And they were very good at uh, soliciting large donations from people like Joseph Gores. 
And so I think that sort of stemming from the new right, we see conservative Catholics really building the institutional and organizational scaffolding for this movement. And from the Protestants, we see the mobilization of voters. That's why I say they're so mutually beneficial to one another, because the new right has the institutions, has the fundraising capabilities, and the the sort of Protestant Christian right comes with the voters, and certainly also does a good job raising money. Yeah, it's a it's a very savvy uh, marriage, strange one, but I can see that that it works. There's a certain, I mean. We're certainly sure of the left and not a show of the right. But occasionally we do these episodes about the right. They're always very critical. But but I always leave with a certain amount of like respect and awe for like the level of strategy and the committedness and the long scope of their activism and the institution building. You have to sort of tip your hat. I mean, how, what have you seen? Does it impress you or how do you feel about it? Yeah, I, my students always ask me why I study the right. And my, my stock answer is because they're so much better at politics yeah. than the left. <laughs> I'm really trying to work out whether it's because the right is more disciplined than the left, right? That's usually our people's stock response is like you, you have more party discipline, you have more ideological conformity on the right. But I think that it may it may actually be because the right is more receptive to its furthest right flank, capturing its discourse. So what we see kind of in these these periodic waves is a a quote-unquote radical or insurgent movement form and basically pick up the right wherever it is and drag it. Mm. (laughs) So we saw the new right do this to the Republican Party and then we get the Reagan Revolution, right? We saw the Tea Party, and then we have Trump. And on the left, every time we try and advance more progressive issues, there is so much discipline that it just gets quashed. It's like, no, you're too radical. You're too progressive. Don't challenge capitalism. <laughs> like, be good democratic neoliberal capitalists. I wonder if there's also something about like the kind of um, religious maybe humility is the wrong word, but um, we're talking about a case in the year 2021 that's like a response to a case in the year 1974. So like these projects that the right has been building, these are 30, 40 year projects of like incremental institution building that suggests a kind of like patience, like, oh, even the next generation, it might have to be the next generation and not us, that you don't normally see on the left. I don't know exactly why, but it seems like there's like a little bit of a less of an appetite for that kind of incremental institution building. I think you're right that there's less of an appetite. I think the left also puts its money in different places than the right. You know, conservative donors fund political organizations and institutions, and the left, like, is concerned with if people eat or have roofs over their heads. But I also think that there's something to be said for the left has labored under the misguided fiction that the right only reacts to what the left does. So if we, we conceive of the right is always reactionary and that keeps us from identifying 
what for the right are its utopian visions, mm. right? Like they do have an idea of the society they want to create or in the language I use, the, the world they want to prefigure. And, you know, how much or how little actual prefiguration happens depends on the community you're looking at. You go to Marble County where you have like basically a white ethnostate compound and you're like, yeah, y'all are really embodying (laughs) the world you want to create. You know, if I could get any, (laughs) if if I could make people listen, it would be to say like, they're dreaming bigger than you give them credit for. That was Chelsea Eben, assistant professor at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She's also co-founder for the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. Her forthcoming edited collection on male supremacism is coming out in April 2022. She's also working on a book about Catholics and evangelicals. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Show notes by Dave Mosscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. You can send us feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We also received support on this episode by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This was part of a wider set of episodes that looked at the rise of far-right political ideologies. The project was advised by Professor Andre Gagne at Concordia, Professor Ronald Beener at the University of Toronto, and Professor A. James McAdams at Notre Dame. The research assistants on this project were Isabel Lemelin and Tim Burke. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday.